going to read in, in Matthew chapter 13. So, Matthew chapter 13, where we've been, if you have been with us the, these last few weeks, I've uh, been for a few weeks now, but we're going to read um, from verse 44 to the end of the chapter, that is verse 58. So, Matthew uh, chapter 13, starting at verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogues so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offence at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honour except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. The word of God to us today may have an impact on each and every one of us and God will speak to us through his word, we pray. The value of being in the kingdom of heaven, the value of being in the kingdom of heaven is what we're going to think about today. In Matthew 13, Verse 11, uh, the commencement of these parables, Jesus said to his disciples, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. The secrets of the kingdom of heaven. That there would be a kingdom was no secret. That was long anticipated by the Jewish people, based, of course, on the promises that God had made frequently. Uh, one of the uh, great passages uh, that we may remember, or we might not remember, is found in Daniel 
chapter 2. There was a king there, a king of the Babylonian Empire, and he had a great dream. Well, he had a dream with great meaning, perhaps I should say. And the dream was interpreted to him by Daniel, given the message by God, that there would indeed be kingdoms upon this world, in this world, the Babylonian, the Persian, the Greek, and the Roman Empire. But then, the God of heaven, it says in Daniel 2 verse 44, will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall there be kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. So there was no secret that there would be a coming kingdom upon this earth. And that was what the people uh, who had looked at the Bible, the Jewish people were waiting for, for the king to come and set up his kingdom. And as we'll think, the Lord Jesus Christ is indeed that king. He is the king cut without hands, as it is in Daniel chapter 2. He'll destroy the kingdoms and rule the whole earth, and his kingdom will stand forever. So what's the secret then? What is the sort of kind of, what's, what's, what didn't they know? What did not they know? What they didn't know was this, and what the Lord Jesus Christ is telling them. That the kingdom that they were anticipating was not going to come just yet. The kingdom that Daniel had foreseen would come indeed, but the present coming of the kingdom before its full physical manifestation in this world, would be a kingdom which we could describe as invisible, or as some people say, a kingdom in, in mystery form. Pick whatever words you like which are equivalent to that. But there would be the rule of the king in the hearts and minds of people who had come to faith in him. And that is what is happening in this world now and has been happening, that there are people, an increasing number of people, who have submitted to the kingship of Jesus Christ, have placed their faith and trust in him. They are truly in the kingdom, and there will be a coming time when this kingdom will come and be seen upon the earth. Jesus promised, Jesus promised that he would come again. It will be the second advent, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to this earth, and he will reign upon this earth. Now, looking in Glasgow in these next two weeks, thinking about the future of this earth. And whatever you might think about this, this is not a political platform at all whatsoever, but what God has revealed, what God has revealed, one of the things he has revealed, is that the Lord Jesus Christ will come and he will reign upon this earth. That is without a doubt. It's based on the sure and certain promises of God. Now, we looked at the parables so far. We looked at a few. Uh, the parable of the soils, uh, the, the kingdom would be advanced by the preaching of God's word. There'll be different reactions to that. We thought about um, the wheat and the weeds. Um, last week, those who respond positively will live alongside the indifferent in this world. But there will be a gathering at the end, a sorting out of these things. We'll think about that again this week as it comes up. So parable number two out of the eight is mirrored by parable number seven of the eight. And then we thought last week how there will be tremendous impact in the world where the gospel 
is made known where the Lord Jesus Christ is trusted. And we see that in parables three and four. And so that is what we thought of so far. So we've got four parables uh, we're going to look at today and a little narrative at the end. And these four parables we're going to group into a pair at the start. So numbers five and six we're going to put into a pair. We're going to think of the word possession. There's three words. If you can't, I hope you remember more than three words as you leave today. But if you can remember the words possession, possession, that's going to summarize, if you like, uh, parables five and six. They're a pair, just as parables three and four were a pair. We're going to think of separation, that's parable seven, as was parable two to some extent as well, the wheat and the tears, separation. And then we're going to think about acceptation, accepting. And that's parable number eight and the narrative. So possession, separation, and acceptation. So let's think about that. What is God saying to us through his word today? Possession. They're very two similar parables, aren't they? If this was the first time you'd read them uh, for a long time, you thought, as we read, there's great similarity there, isn't there? Of a treasure hidden in a field that a man finds, he sells everything, and just really possesses that field so he can have the treasure in the field. And the merchant one is, is quite similar. There's some little differences, of course, but basically people find something and sell all they have that they might get something. That's them two in a summary, isn't it? They find something, they sell all they have that they might get something. They see what they have found, what they have got, as of far greater value than what they had. All the possessions, all that they had, they are willing to give up for that which they have now found. That's what brings those two together. Oh, because the, the man with the treasure in the field appears to us, doesn't it, is, is a parable, uh, that he wasn't particularly looking for this. He wasn't particularly looking. He's going through a field and he finds something that is hidden. You know, back in those days, of course, uh, I wouldn't sort of recommend it as something to do now, but people hid their treasure in fields. That's what they did. They would hide it away. It wouldn't be put in a safe bank account. Hopefully bank accounts are relatively safe, better than putting them in a field anyway. But that's what they would do with their treasures. They would put them in a field. And this man goes and finds there is treasure and he sees that is fantastic, absolutely valuable, that's what he wants, and sells everything and goes and buys it. He wasn't particularly looking for him for it. But for him, the field is worth far more than the price he paid for it. This is an absolute bargain for him, if you like, that he has got. The Pearl of Great Price one is different, isn't it? In that one, what we see is there is this merchant, this businessman, and he is looking for pearls. He is actively searching for pearls. So unlike the man who stumbles on the treasure in the, uh, the first parable we have today, he is, not, he is looking for something. And when he finds this one of great value, he sells everything else that he has. Probably, well, you imagine if he's looking for pearls, he's already got pearls, but he'll sell all the other ones because he's got this one, which is of great price. And so one seems to stumble more upon it. 
One is actively searching, but as I said, what they both have in common is they then see the supreme worth of what they now possess. The supreme worth of what they now possess. They gave up everything. Everything for that which was of ultimate value. Now, sometimes it would be said, and well, it would be said, that the Lord Jesus doesn't interpret these two parables, does he? Because we had the parable of soils, that's interpreted for us. We have the parable of the wheat and tears, that's interpreted for us. We have the parable of the net, we'll think about next, that is interpreted. These two are not interpreted here in the text directly for us. But, does Matthew give us some clues? I think so. I think so. If we were to turn later on into Matthew chapter 16, we would see the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's the language, as we see there, of someone who gives up everything to get something. Similar to those two parables, yes, that we've looked at already. Because in Matthew 16, verse 24, the Lord Jesus says this. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. Then he will pay each person according to what he's done. The Lord Jesus Christ there is using language, isn't he? Of giving up something and seeing something else of supreme worth. Deny self, take up the cross, follow me. The language is of a person who is willing. The, the call is to give up all that you have, all that you place your trust upon, and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? If you've got the whole world, I mean, that, that's hyperbole, isn't it? Hyperbole there. If you've got the whole world, it's nothing if you lose your own soul. Those things which are in this world, which are temporary and just passing for a time, are nothing in comparison to the value of your soul, which is eternal and will go forever. In this parable then, so Jesus is speaking. And the lesson for us is of seeing entrance into the kingdom of God, being a true citizen of the kingdom of heaven, is of more value than anything else. Anything else. Everything else falls in comparison to being sure that you are in this kingdom. You, an individual. The Lord Jesus Christ is not teaching in these powers that you can purchase your way into it. He's not teaching that you can purchase 
your way into it. We know that people go and buy or they sell all they have that they might buy that field. He's not teaching that you can buy your way into it any more than he was when he spoke to a church in Laodicea. It's recorded in Revelation 3 verse 18. There was a church in Laodicea and the Lord Jesus Christ says to that church, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself. He's not saying about actually you can purchase salvation. You can give things that you might be in the kingdom. The comparison is on the supreme worth, the value of being in that kingdom, the supreme worth of the king of that kingdom, the Lord Jesus Christ. Your entrance into the kingdom of heaven, to be a true citizen of this, is through faith and submission to the king. He paid the full and complete price himself. He would say later in um, Matthew, in, the, in chapter 20, verse 28, that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. None of us could buy our way in to heaven. There's nothing that we can do to do that. There's nothing that we can do in that sense to make ourselves right before God. The Lord Jesus Christ paid the price completely and fully at Calvary's cross. He bore the punishment for sin so that anyone and everyone who trusts in him, submits to him, can have their sins forgiven and can know that they have eternal life, that they are in that right relationship with God, can enjoy that now and forever, and that is something that cannot be taken away. And when a person understands that, they see this of surpassing value. There, there is nothing else, there is no one else who, who is even equivalent on the same page as this. As Christ and his kingdom, the supreme value of being in that. When you understand the message of the gospel, you will see that Jesus Christ is of supreme worth. Let me illustrate that through the life of someone who came to realise that. Very religious man doing lots of things, zealous for the things of God. Lots of sort of religious qualifications, if you like. But he comes to faith in Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul says these words. Indeed, in Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake... I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. 
Our sin separates us from God. Your sin separates you from God. Well, think of the awful consequence of that when we think of separation in the next section. But the gospel message is this. That although you can do nothing with regard to that sin, God has given a full and complete salvation that is found in a perfect saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can have sins forgiven. You can have the righteousness that God requires through trusting in Jesus Christ. You know, the, the Apostle Paul that I read about then was, do, was into all sorts of religious qualifications that he thought gave him merit before God. But he came to understand that none of that worked. None of that worked whatsoever. And God himself had provided a way whereby a person could be seen as righteous in his sight. Not through their acts, but, as he said, through faith in Christ. Through faith in Christ. And so the surpassing worth of being in that kingdom, and realising that means that you see that as beyond compare. Beyond compare. So why is there two parables then illustrating pretty much the same point? Why is there two parables pretty much illustrating the same point? Same as there was really uh, in a lot of ways with the wheat and the leaven as we looked at last week. Parables 3 and 4, parables 5 and 6 mirror, they are a pair as well. Let me suggest this. We've got the treasure in the field, haven't we? The treasure in the field. It is if some people don't really seem in their lives, to have any thought of of looking for the king and his kingdom. There's no no real thought in their lives with regard to that. But then they seem to be confronted, almost stumble on the reality of who Jesus Christ is. And it's not that they were looking, it seems from their point of view, it just sort of seems to come upon them. And the reality they discover is that Jesus Christ is the saviour. Through him they can have eternal life. And they quickly repent of their sin and trust in Jesus Christ. There's many illustrations of that. We could look in the Bible. But what I was thinking of, and I don't think I've told you this one before, but you'll tell me afterwards I have, was in the time when there was a man called George Whitfield. And George Whitfield was a great preacher of the gospel. And... In those times, you, you, some people think, you know, uh, th- th- this country now, you know, it's terrible, you know, the, the gospel is maligned and derided and all things like that in the public circle and around. Well, it was in the 1700s as well. And there was a group of people who, uh, who sort of followed Whitfield around and tried to disrupt his meetings. But not only that, they got sort of hold of his sermons and made a mockery of them. They'd go to the pub and someone would imitate Whitfield. He was cross-eyed, you know, so it was quite easy to imitate. And then they would do, do this sort of mockery of a sermon. But it was a man called Thorpe once. And he'd been to see Whitfield. He'd, see all the, he'd heard the gospel preached. And uh, he went down to the pub and he says, you know, I've got the, I've got the great... I've got, I've got a great imitation. You know, you'll, you'll love this, lads. And he stands up in the pub. And uh, he actually has a Bible, you know, because he's going to do like Whitfield is. And um, he opens the Bible, and, well, coincidentally, it comes on this part. 
except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. And he's about to start this mockery. But as he spoke, those words convicted him. Those words hit him like a thunderbolt. He'd been to hear Whitfield preach and say those words, but nothing had happened. The man had heard the gospel, he knew the factual information about it. But at that very point, when he seems to be about to mock, the Spirit of God works on him. And at that point, he comes and confesses Jesus Christ as his Lord and Saviour. There was a man who almost sort of seems to stumble quickly. He wasn't really looking. But the Spirit of God works and he realises the supreme worth and value of Jesus Christ. But some people have an intense longing, don't they? A looking, searching. Seem to have spent many years, maybe even a lifetime, searching for the truth. Maybe sort of involved in, in religious activity, going to church regular, reading the Bible regular. And what is the truth? And then after this sort of great search, they find, probably we could say like Paul did. Like Paul did, he had all these things about him. He was circumcised the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as, as to zeal a persecutor of the law, as to the law blameless, or persecutor of the church, pardon me, as to righteousness under the law blameless. But on a road on Damascus, Christ appears to him, and he understands that all this religious stuff counts for nothing. Counts his loss, he said, didn't he? But the supreme worth is Jesus Christ and finding him. And so there is this possession. Some people go on a long journey. Some people go on a short journey. But all true citizens will come to this point. The confession of Jesus Christ as their Lord and of their Saviour. Repentance from sin. Turning from that and a turning to him for salvation. Do you possess? Do you possess? Because the next parable gives us a captivating reason why trusting in the king and being a true citizen is of tremendous importance, separation. We've got the fishing analogy there. The fishing is of a dragnet, or the story, a dragnet carried, and it captures everything along as it is taken along. And when it's taken along, the, the fishermen sort of then get everything that is in that net and they separate the good from the bad. And the Lord Jesus says, this one's interpreted for us, so we, we've got the idea of the dragnet. And the Lord Jesus says, thus it will be at the end of the age. The very same words, the very same words that we use when we had the explanation earlier of the weeds and the tears, at the end of the age, speaking about a judgment between the good and the bad. And as we see, it is include, what is in here is the righteous and the wicked. Those seen righteous in God's sight, those seen wicked in God's sight. 
It's interesting, isn't it? That is really a repetition. Verse 49, we have, so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous. At the end of the age, in the parable of the weeds, it says, the harvest, verse 39, is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The wheat will be put into barns, a place of safety. The tares and the weeds, not so. Jesus tells us that in this world, there will be those who are true citizens of the kingdom, and there will be those who are not. Again, they will live side by side. But what he tells us, although this is not a full description of the last days, and it concentrates just on one aspect, the judgment of unbelievers. A judgment of those who haven't accepted the king. A judgment on those who are not true citizens of the kingdom. The Lord Jesus Christ spoke more on this than anyone else in the Bible. And he spoke more on it than heaven. Not to scare us into trusting in him. Because we're going to just, we want to, we don't want to have this. So we're just going to do whatever's necessary. No. To show to us, to show to you. That the only salvation is found in him, and salvation, a sure and certain salvation, can come in him. So it is concerned with an age at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the end of the age. And so there will be, as the end of the age is this time, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. At that time, I believe that he will set up his thousand-year reign upon this earth. Now, if you think something different, that's okay, but we will agree it is his coming to this. There's the end of the age. This world is not going to go on forever. This world is not going to go on forever. No matter whatever's decided in Glasgow or anything like that, it's not going to go on forever. Doesn't mean we shouldn't take care of it, by the way, okay? But it's not going to go on. But what is clear to us, there's a separation. The righteous enter the physical kingdom. The unrighteous are consigned to a place of fire where there is wailing and gnashing of teeth. Now, as I say, this is just a little summary. There's more detail. We could go into other books in the Bible, but that's sufficient for us today to understand. A separation. A separation between those who are true citizens of the kingdom and those who are not. So that's why I said, just as we left possession, are you a true citizen? Because what we understand here is that if you are not, it is a matter of supreme consequence. There is a consequence to that. There is a separation. We don't like the subject of hell, even less so in the 21st century, even in churches. And I don't particularly like it either. But it is a repeated truth in the scriptures. Sweeping it under the carpet will not do. Making light mention of it will not do. 
We seek to give it the full weight that Jesus gave it, the full weight that the Scriptures. Eternal blessedness or condemnation depends on your individual response to the gospel, to Jesus Christ. Hell and the lake of fire are real. They are places, a place of eternal conscious judgment and punishment. It is where everyone is destined, the wrath of God is upon them, except if they have that great salvation, trusting in the King, the Lord Jesus Christ, who paid the price for their sin, paid the price for sin at Calvary's cross. Friends, today we, we there is a message of the gospel that hell and the lake of fire can be averted. Depends on your individual response, not your wife's response, not your husband's response, not your parents' response, your grandparents' response. It's on your individual response to that. All who reject, neglect or refuse that salvation that comes through faith in the Lord Jesus will spend eternity there. There's no end. There'll be no joy. There'll be no blessings. There'll be no escape. There will be no end. Hell. The lake of fire. Does show us the extent of God's love. Because the Lord Jesus on the cross takes the full punishment that our sins deserve. No one who goes there can say this is unfair. It's exactly what sin deserves. But Christ, when he cried out, my, far, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was separated from his God so that you might never be. He was separated so that you might never be. So that you might never have eternal separation and judgment. And today the message, the seed is being sown. And the seed is good. The sower in this occasion might not be. But he does his best. The response is for you. To understand then why you would give up all the temple things if you had to. You know, Jesus, when you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, he doesn't say to you, sell your house, sell everything, you know, live as a pauper. That's not what. But the comparison is, he is of supreme, eternal, infinite worth. And the other things that we have are not. not on the, they're not in comparison, is what Paul said. And so we would, if we understand that, come to him. And of course, what happens is the Lord Jesus Christ says to them, have you understood all those things? So we thought about possession. We thought about separation. And what's your response? To Jesus Christ. How are you responding to Christ? Acceptation. 
Very serious what we just looked at. And Jesus says, have you understood all these things? And I must admit, I sort of kind of imagine myself in this situation with the disciples. You know, I imagine myself there. Have you understood? Yeah, 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 we're understood. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like when you used to have a meeting at work. Everyone understood what we're doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Any questions? No, 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 no questions. Go out of the room. What do you mean by that? I don't know. Do you mean? No, 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 no. What do we ask? I don't know. I didn't want to ask. Well, I think that's what the disciples were like, because we see that later on. You know, they didn't fully understand, you know. But they said, yeah, yeah, we, we got it, we got it. Well, so there's this eighth parable, parable, parable. I mean, the Lord Jesus knew they didn't fully understand, you know. Do you understand, you know? But it does remind us, doesn't it, that the mere hearing of a sermon can't profit us. It's the true understanding of that that brings transformation. The true understanding of it brings transformation and allowing God to work in our lives. And so the last parable, he says, well, therefore, if you have understood these truths, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out his treasure, what is new and what is old. So the idea is there's a master and what he's got, he's got some new stuff and he's got some old stuff, stuff that he's had for ages. Yeah, absolutely. And there's some new stuff and he brings it out. Well, why does he do that? Why does he bring that out? What's Jesus' point here in this eighth parable? And I think it's this, that what he's saying, therefore, if you have understood these truths, you can bring them aside, alongside all the old, these are new truths to you. You can bring them alongside all the older truths that you know that have been revealed ages ago and bring out the whole treasure of the gospel concerning me. Concerning me. We could go right back into the book of Genesis. And we could see right there, just after the fall of man, the entrance of sin into this world, that there is a promise of the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman. We go through Isaiah, a virgin will be with child. All these promises are coming up. All these old things have been around for hundreds and hundreds of years. But they find their realisation in the person of Jesus Christ. Here is the one in whom are all the fulfilment of all those things from the past. Now he says, if you, speaking to his disciples, have understood that, then when you go out, when you go out, you can bring all that to bear, the treasures new and old. And that's what we see. What we see. I mean, very early in the book of Acts, we see the disciples, Peter, standing up and quoting from the Psalms, you know, about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How David said, you know, you'll not let my um, body corrupt. And he says, well, it doesn't point to David, it points to Christ, because he's resurrected. You know, what David wrote in the Psalm was an old thing. But Christ's resurrection, new thing. And they go through bringing those together. And friends, if you're a believer, you can do that as well. You can do that as well. The prophecies which are written concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, those old things, they found their fulfilment in him. He is the great truth. And so they said, yes, we have accepted. We have accepted. But just as we conclude, there's this large bit of narrative, isn't there? And the Lord Jesus goes to his hometown. And do you know... As you, read, as you read it, we understand, the question comes, you know, we understand that there was no doubting that Jesus Christ did miracles. 
and taught wonderfully. Because they don't, no one disputes that here. The question is, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? He, he had grown up amongst them. And it would seem then that no miracles or mighty works were done before his public ministry commenced, when he was about 30 years old. But they can't deny he's doing them. He's got brothers, four, sisters, seems to be at least three then. We should say half brothers and half sisters is what we really should say. They were born of Mary and probably Joseph. Uh, different Jesus wasn't born of Joseph in that sense, of course. But where did they get him? Now what happens is, what we can just briefly say here is, they understood that he did these things, but they refused to accept him. I think if we had a bit longer, we could explore you know, the idea that someone who was amongst them had now risen up to be far greater than them. They didn't like that idea. That's a sort of very human way of thinking, isn't it? We can relate that to our own times uh, in, in different ways. I'm not going to go down that avenue, but we can understand, you know, there was someone maybe a bit younger. He was on, seemed to be on the same level as you once, but now he's risen up in prominence and significance. He didn't like that. But of course, the Lord Jesus Christ was far more than that. And what happens? They take offence at him. They found in him obstacles to come to faith in him. Any sort of reason, could be illogical, could be unreasonable, but they wouldn't come. They would just put stumbling blocks in the way. We're not going to trust in him. And you know what? That's not too far different from some people in our world. I correspond very, really regularly with an ex-work colleague um, via, via text. Once, twice, three times a week. And we frequently, frequently, I sort of bring before him the, the, the gospel, the Bible, and really try and focus on the person of Christ. Because all other things, if you don't sort of come and sort of think about Jesus Christ and present him the, the age of the earth and what do you think about things, they don't, they don't really matter. They don't really matter. Firstly, what about Jesus Christ? What about the miracles that people saw? What about the resurrection and the evidence for the resurrection? My friend just constantly bats it away. We, we've, I'm a bit kind and say, that's a rubbish excuse. I wouldn't write that in a text back to him, but sort of challenge it, you know. That's how people are. Resistant, and those people were resistant. And of course, we've learned today. We've learned today the consequence of resisting coming to Christ. You know, familiarity can blind us to the greatness and glory of the Saviour. It can do. So be careful. Three words to remember then. Possession. Separation. Acceptation. The worth of being in the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father, we bow in your presence. Thank you for your word, Father. It's powerful. 
is very clear. It is a word that is able to transform us. It is a word that brings for us warnings. It is a word that brings for us great comfort and hope as well. And so, our God, we know the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you understand? Lord, help us, each and every one of us here individually, to understand and to respond appropriately. We ask it for your glory and for your name's sake. So we come in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.